Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new release, Tapping Out, by poet Nandi Comer. The relentless motions and blinding colors of Lucha Libre are the backdrop to this arresting book. Each poem in Tapping Out is a freestyle movement of language and complexity put on full display under the bright lights and roars of survival. Published on May 15th, listeners will receive a 20% discount on Tapping Out or any other title with promo code POD20. This offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Today's episode is also brought to you by the Index of Self-Destructive Acts, sweeping in scope yet meticulous in its construction. The novel is a remarkable family portrait and a masterful evocation of New York City and its institutions. Through an inextricably linked cast of characters, author Christopher Beha traces the passing of the torch from the old establishment to the new meritocracy and explores how each generation's failure helped land us where we are today. Nelzink says it's a book's worth of thoughtful essays folded into a kick-ass novel, and Kirkus adds in a starred review that its breadth, ambition, and command are refreshing. The Index of Self-Destructive Acts is out now from Tin House Books. Today's conversation with Hanif Abdurraqib was originally supposed to happen here in Portland last September when he was coming here as part of the Reed College reading series, but his plane was delayed, and it couldn't happen then. So we then decided to aim for this summer's Tin House workshop, where he is faculty, but given the uncertainty around how the summer will unfold with the pandemic, we ultimately decided to go ahead and meet remotely. We settled upon a time, but not realizing that we each assumed that that time was in our own respective time zones, Portland, Oregon time here, Columbus, Ohio time there. And it wasn't until the evening of the night before that we both realized our mistake, thankfully, and somehow leapt this last hurdle to talk to you about one of my most memorable reads of 2019, Abdurrah Akib's poetry collection, A Fortune for Your Disaster. Hanif also adds the reading of a poem that he loves and finds himself returning to over and over again to the bonus audio archive, a poem by Andrew Grace called Not a Mile. To learn how to subscribe to the bonus audio, or to find out what other perks and rewards there are to becoming a supporter of Between the Covers. Perks that include patron-only emails that come with each episode that contain supplementary avenues to explore, links to some of the more noteworthy articles and podcasts and books that I either read in preparation for the week's conversation or mention in some fashion within the conversation, to back copies of Tin House magazine, to becoming a Tin House early reader, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. You can find out about these and much more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, 
You're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Hanif Abdurraqib, is a poet, essayist, and cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. His first poetry collection, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, released in 2016 by Button Poetry, was nominated for the Hurston Wright Legacy Award and was a finalist for the Eric Hoffer Book Prize. In early 2017, Abdurraqib released his first essay collection, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us published by $2 Radio, which was named a Book of the Year by BuzzFeed, Esquire, NPR, Oprah Magazine, and the Chicago Tribune, among many others. In early 2019, he released the New York Times bestselling book, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, with the University of Texas Press, which was a finalist for the Kirkus Prize and on the long list for the National Book Award in nonfiction. Abdurraqib has been a columnist at MTV News, and poetry editor at Muzzle Magazine, and is managing editor at Button Poetry, and founder of the Echo Hotel Poetry Collective with poet Eve Ewing. Abdurraqib's poetry has been published in Pen American, Poetry Society of America, The Rumpus, The Volta, The Offing, and elsewhere, and his essays and music criticism have been in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Pitchfork, among many others. Hanif Abdurraqib is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his much-anticipated second poetry collection, A Fortune for Your Disaster, out from Tin House Books. Receiving a starred review from Publishers Weekly, Maria Isabel Carlos calls A Fortune for Your Disaster a book born of blood, of heartache, of isolation, of history, of forging new paths, and forging new endings. Khadija Queen adds that a fortune for your disaster proves that if you pay attention, black people have defined and still define themselves for themselves amid roses and dandelions, cardinals and violets, the blues of music and police uniforms, prayer and swagger. The disaster is not us or ours, but what we endure, forced as a matter of course, whether our presence is acknowledged or not, on our terms or not. The fortune is us, and it is ours, with the music as richly profound as we are. Abdurraqib makes it undeniably so. Finally, Ilya Kaminsky says, This is the kind of poetic stand that helps us stay alive, even in our late empire that moves to its own truth and dread. Abdurraqib is the voice to live with. Welcome to Between the Covers, Hanif Abdurraqib. Thanks so much for having me. That was a really warm and kind intro. So one of your upcoming books is on the history of Black performance, but you could argue that much of your work, both prose and poetry, engages with performance, 
with the two strongest through lines perhaps being music and sports and using both as a lens both towards larger societal questions and more personal and intimate and individual ones. And we see both of those in A Fortune of Your Disaster. We see perhaps most particularly the series of poems about the ghost of Marvin Gaye, but also the iconic moment when Michael Jordan pushed off to dispense of the Utah Jazz in the NBA Finals. But in A Fortune of Your Disaster, you introduce another form of performance that isn't prevalent in your previous work, but which provides one of the ways this collection is organized. And that's the performance of magic, of the magic trick. And more specifically, magic as it was portrayed in Christopher Nolan's movie, The Prestige. So I was hoping we could start there with your interest in the prestige and the way the prestige is employed and evoked in, in the poetry collection. I travel a whole lot. And a thing about this book is that I had written a good portion of it by maybe mid-2016. I, I thought I was in a good place. And then um, by late 2016, I was dispensing of a lot of the work that I had written and trying to find a different angle um, because it didn't feel like the work that I had written was staying true to the ideas that I that I wanted to get at or the emotions I was trying to evoke when I uh, set out to write the book. Um, and I was uh, on a plane um and I normally work on planes. I don't really not have time to, I, I like working on planes because I, I feel the least distracted there. I, I mean, I, um, I fly a lot, but don't necessarily love flying. I, I have a hard time coming to terms with, um, being in the air, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, anything that distracts me from the fact that I'm kind of careening through the sky and in, in a metal machine makes me feel good. So I usually work. Um, but, um, I had some time to watch a movie um, and so I watched The Prestige because I hadn't seen it in a while. Um, and I became instantly kind of obsessed with a different reading of the film than I'd had when I saw it the first time when I was younger. Um, instead of thinking about it as a film about magic, instead thinking about it as a film about two men trying to um, fill an emotional void through revenge. Um, and that seemed so fascinating to me. And what seemed more fascinating to me, and this is, I guess, I'm, I'm going to say the moratorium on spoilers is up since that movie's been out for like 18 years. <laughs> um, what was more fascinating to me was um, the fact that each of the magicians, the two men in the movie, were um, attempting to top each other by the use of kind of doubling themselves. One of them had an actual double and the other one was multiplying himself through a machine Tesla made. Um, and the one who had an, had a double of himself, there was, um, you don't know this as the movie goes on. You don't know until the very end that, he, that he has a, as an exact twin. Um, but as the movie, you know, during the movie, there'd be scenes where his wife, um, would say stuff like, I don't think you love me today. And then on another day, she would say, like, oh, I can tell that you love me today. And you don't know that there's two of him. Yeah. Uh, you just think that it's the one guy. Um, and you get to the end. I'm so fascinated by this idea um, that all of us have different versions of ourselves that are capable of, um, that have limits to, to how much we're capable of loving that shift daily or hourly or by the minute even. Um, and I, I wanted to examine that. And I wanted to examine, too, um, the cost of 
um, the other musician, uh, magician's dilemma of having to replicate himself and like actually kill himself every night um, in order to offer something spectacular to an audience. And I wanted to, to kind of, I, I became obsessed with those two dilemmas and wanted to try to write into them. Yeah. So the, the magician, Hugh Jackman, he, he goes to see Nikola Tesla played by David Bowie, David Bowie yeah. in, in search of the machine that would help him complete this magic trick of vanishing and reappearing in a way that no one had before. And, but the catch that you mentioned that the, the magician would be duplicated and the duplicated version would fall through a trapdoor and drown. In other words, for someone to pull off this, this magic impossible performance, they supposedly had to kill a part of themselves, or at least we think that's what's happening. Uh, is that what we're, is that part of what you're referring to in, in the title? Yeah. A fortune for your disaster. Well, kind of part of, yeah. I mean, the title has many arms. Um, there's many, many explanations. Um, I mean, on its face, the title is a reference to a fallout boy lyric from a song on their third album. But also I became fascinated by the story of Marvin Gaye's Hear My Dear album. Um, the album that he made essentially to um, like pay uh, to pay off his, his to pay off alimony um, for his divorce. And so um, I became really fascinated by that um, and how he returned to something he loved uh, and he knew he could make money at um, as a way to separate himself from the end of a marriage. Um, and I was also ultimately fascinated by, um, any world or any economy, artistic economy or otherwise that asks for people's pain, that asks to see people's pain, um, or asks for a detailed interaction with people's pain in order to be, um, in order to celebrate them. And I think what I arrived at is that I don't know. I think people might enjoy engaging with the idea of pain, but not, uh, they don't really want to get too far in the weeds of, um, systems that might cause people pain, or they don't want to get too in the weeds of a large level examination of, um, in my case, at least with this project, if I'm talking about love and loss, they might not want to get too far into the weeds of entitlement or accountability for losing someone you once loved. They might just kind of want to see the pain, right? It's like, how sad are you? Um, yeah. But they don't want to. They don't want to get into the weeds of the other things. Well, I would. I would like to maybe have you read the poem "Prestige," which we encounter before the epigraph of the book or the book's title page. We encounter this poem, "The Prestige," but perhaps we should also mention that another. Uh, meaning of the word prestige is it's the third part of the magic trip trick that starts with the pledge, then goes to the turn and then goes to pre the prestige. Um, and that's one way the book is structured. Uh, could you, could you orient us to those three parts of the trick and then, and then share that, that poem with us? Sure. Yeah. The three parts of uh, the, the prestige, the book and the movie, the movie's based off of a book that I feel like people don't read because, and, and to be fair, the book is not as, um, kind of delicious as the movie but they both kind of open with this concept of the three parts of the magic trick um the pledge is where a magician presents something that appears normal um to an audience willing that is willing to be uh tricked um 
the turn is where the normal thing does something abnormal. So for example, um, I present to you a rabbit and then uh, I drop a rabbit into a hat and then turn the hat over to show that the rabbit's not in there, right? Um, but the prestige, as uh, as is said in the movie, as Michael Caine so eloquently says, um, the prestige is the hard part because it is when you have to make the thing that disappeared reappear. Um, the prestige is where um, you tie the bow on the magic trick by... Um, it's like the reveal. And I was actually fascinated by that third part so much, right? If we're talking about, in my case, if I'm thinking about love or loss or heartache, um, I, I was I loved considering through um, these ideas about uh, how to make um, a vanished thing dis- dis- that disappeared come back. Um, so uh, this is the poem, The Prestige, which opens the book. The poem begins not where the knife enters, but where the blade twists. Some wounds cannot be hushed, no matter the way one writes of blood and what reflection arrives in its pooling. The poem begins with pain as a mirror, inside of which I adjust a tithe way my father taught me before my first funeral, and so the poem begins with old grief again at my neck. On the radio... A singer born in a place where children watch the sky for bombs is trying to sell me on love as something akin to war, and I have no lie to offer as treacherous as this one. I was most like the bullet when I viewed the body as a door, but I'm past that now. No one will bury their kin when desire becomes a fugitive between us. There will be no folded flag at the doorstep. A person only gets to be called a widow once, and then they are simply lonely, the bluest period. Gratitude not for love itself, but for the way it can end without a house on fire. This is how I plan to leave next, unceremonious as birth in a country overrun by the ungrateful living. The poem begins with a chain of well-meaning liars walking one by one off the earth's edge. That's who died and made me king, who died and made you. Been listening to Hanif Abdurraqib read from his latest poetry collection, A Fortune for Your Disaster. Two through lines in the collection are Nikola Tesla, or perhaps Tesla as performed by Bowie in The Prestige, with multiple poems entitled, It's Not Like Nikola Tesla Knew All of Those People Were Going to Die, and Marvin Gaye with the many Ghost of Marvin Gaye poems with titles like The Ghost of Marvin Gaye Sits in the Ruins of the Old Livingston Flea Market and Considers Monogamy, or The Ghost of Marvin Gaye Mistakes a Record Store for a Graveyard. And I I wanted to ask you about why you juxtapose these two figures in the collection. But before I do that, I I first wanted to hear about your interest specifically in Marvin Gaye. I know you just mentioned a specific time period of Marvin Gaye, earlier, but much like the seven Marvin Gaye poems here, Marvin Gaye punctuates and connects your essay collection, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, with scenes from Gaye's singing of the national anthem at the 1983 NBA All-Star Game. So I was hoping maybe you could just take a couple minutes and talk to us about Marvin Gaye as a person or a musician or muse in these two books, and then maybe from there um, talk about any relationship 
or what relationship you're trying to create between him and Tesla by juxtaposing them in the poetry. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I'm fascinated by Marvin Gaye because I, I think that he lived um, a life that appeared sometimes miraculous and sometimes painful and sometimes, um, you know, capable of great harm, both to himself and others. Um, and he carried all of that in his music. But I think, um, which is the most interesting of his music to me, um, but I think that there is a corner of the world um, that only or most appreciates Marvin Gaye for the sexuality that kind of course through his, his some of his records. But I think that's such a small portion of um, not only his musical catalog, but of what he was actively trying to wrestle with in his work, um, where, you know, I think sometimes he was wrestling with um, both a desire for affection but also a strong desire uh, to be left alone. Um, sometimes I think he was wrestling with, um, of, of course, in some ways he was wrestling with politics and a lot of in some of his work. But I think he was also wrestling with um, the politics of gender, the politics of fear, the politics of being left, um, and the politics of loneliness. All of that's more interesting to me, and I think. Um, from here, my dear, until the end of his life and end of his career uh, is where Marvin Gaye gets kind of most fascinating to, to me. Um, even if I like some of the music that came before that era, I think Marvin Gaye, the person, becomes more fascinating to me. Um, and and so I, I both in They Can't Kill Us um, and in this book, I think it's just me kind of ruminating on that obsession I have with, um, you know, and They Can't Kill Us, the question was, um, or the central question I was asking was, how can I examine a reframing of America through the singing of this song by by a black person um, at this game uh, who put their own spin on it and in in, in kind of reformatted the language of it in a way? You know, like there are people like clapping along with that. You know, how can we deconstruct the decorum that is supposed to be present during the national anthem um, when there's so much soul that people can't help but clap their hands, you know? Um, I, I love that. And so I wanted to chase after that. And in this book, I'm kind of chasing after this obsession um, with loneliness that kind of haunts some of Marvin Gaye's work. And um, that, in my opinion, is, is so much more fascinating than um, anything else. Um, Tesla... Bowie's Tesla particularly, although I did get very into, I mean, the book opens with an actual Tesla quote, um, not like a Bowie Tesla quote, like a real Tesla quote. Um, but I, I do, you know, I, I'm, but the Tesla that appears in the book is supposed to be Bowie's Tesla. Um, I was fascinated by, there's this great quote in the movie um, where the magician, Hugh Jackman, um, gets the machine and after multiple tests and multiple failed tests, they find him, you know, Tesla builds a machine that works and Jackman's character says, um, great, I'll take it. And Bowie's Tesla replies, don't take the machine. Have you considered the cost of owning something like this? And Jackman's character replies, money is no object. And Bowie's Tesla shoots back. Yes, but have you considered the cost? And so I, I think, 
I got really into that idea um, that was tr- because, of course, what Bowie's Tesla was saying was the cost of having to kill yourself every night or the cost of um, having to recreate your own life and then only living for, you know, what, 12 to 18 hours and the toll that can take. Um, and there's this haunting image at the end of the movie where you kind of like zoom out um, of the of the the basement of the stage, and you see all the dead clones in the in the tanks they drowned in, um, and that's so haunting to me. And I again thought about um, the Tesla version of this, who built the machine knowing what it was capable of, and then let someone take it. Well, let's hear um, one of the versions of "It's not like Nikola Tesla knew all of those people were going to die." the one on page 14. Okay. It's not like Nikola Tesla knew all those people were going to die. Everyone wants to write about God, but no one wants to imagine their God as the finger trembling inside a grenade pin's ring or the red vine of blood coughed into a child's palm while they cradle the head of a dying parent. Few things are more dangerous than a man who is capable of dividing himself into several men, each of them with a unique river of desire on their tongue. It is also magic to pray for a daughter and find yourself with an endless march of boys who all have the smile of a motherfucker who wronged you once and never apologized. No one wants to imagine their God as the knuckles cracking on a father watching his son picking a good switch from the tree, and certainly no one wants to imagine their God as the tree. Enough with the foolishness of hope and how it bruises the walls of a home where two people sit, stubbornly in love with the idea of staying. If one must pray, I imagine it is most worthwhile to pray towards ending. The only difference between sunsets and funerals is whether or not a town mistakes the howls of a crying woman for madness. I've been listening to Hanif Abdul-Aqib read from A Fortune for Your Disaster. When thinking about, when you're talking about how haunted you were by seeing the clones and thinking about the cost of performance and the juxtaposition of Tesla and, and Gay, when when I think of, um, them in relationship to each other and the title of this last poem, which recurs through the collection. It's not like Nikola Tesla knew all of those people were going to die. I can't help but think of whiteness and how white supremacy preserves white innocence. And I, I don't know if that is what you were going for with the title, but you do, you do juxtapose black and white in the epigraphs to the collection too, where Tesla says, if your hate could be turned into electricity, it would light up the whole world. And Terence Hayes says, never mistake what it is for what it looks like, which brings us back to magic and sleight of hand. And it makes me wonder, either intentionally or unintentionally, whether a, a white ma- magician or performer would have to kill part of himself in order to astonish in the same way that a black magician or performer would have to. Yeah, I mean, that, I got, that wasn't at the forefront of my mind. And I will say that, that Terrence Hayes quote I love, and I have to shout it out because it's from uh, what I think is one of the greatest opening poems 
in any book all time. It's a poem that opens how to be drawn. Um, and it's called what it looked like. And it's just so good. It's just impossibly good. Um, yeah. And, and so, but, but I will say that I think, um, you know, in my newest book, I do a lot of research into black uh, magicians because there's a, there's a piece in the book that kind of revolves around a black magician. Um, the first, um, black woman magician to have her own show. Um, but I, with this was more, um, at least with, with the contrast of those two, um, I was thinking again about magic and, you know, Terrence's poem is not about magic, but that, um, you know, that, that conceit of the not, don't mistake what it is or what it looked like, um, is kind of in effect, um, warning the world about the prestige is warning people about the, the end of the trick. Um, and also in my case, um, when I was thinking about what I was going through at the time of the book, um, it was also this idea about how, when you're no longer in love with someone, um, but have not yet separated from them, even to go out in public is a magic trick, right? Or even to be present in the world with people who know you a certain way is a magic trick. Um, that in and of itself is kind of acting out those three steps of a magic trick, uh, and, and living, um, living through, uh, you know, at least the turn and the prestige. The turn is perhaps when you're no longer in love, but the prestige is when you must fake it for the world until you can't anymore. And so um, that, that's kind of, and so I think that's what I was hitting on um, in Terrence's poem, or that line from Terrence's poem helped me, helped me get there, helped me figure it out. Now I was hoping you could read two really short excerpts from your essay collection, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. Um, one about music and the other about sports before I ask my next question. Okay, this is from Chance the Rapper's Golden Year. A lot of white people love Chance the Rapper, which makes me reluctant to paint him as some smiling and dancing young black artist appealing to the white masses. There's a lot to be made out of Chance's relationship to white rap fans and how he, as an artist, manages to maintain that relationship while not straying from his reliance on the roots of black church music and the spirit of black preaching. I think, though, that a natural reaction to black people being murdered on camera is the notion that living black joy becomes a commodity, something that everyone feels like they should be able to consume as a type of relief point. And this is from On Serena Williams and the Policing of Imagined Arrogance. There is really no measurement for how America wants its black athletes to be. Oftentimes, they are asked to both know their greatness and know their place at the same time, a landscape that becomes increasingly difficult to navigate depending upon the sport they're in. When Deion Sanders starts high-stepping at the 40-yard line, he's still dancing. America has always been fine with its black athletes doing the dance on the field of their choosing, as long as they do the dance off of it. So I, I can't help but imagine that part of your ongoing meditation on performance in general and, and black performance in particular is also in part a way to navigate being a black artist yourself, one who started in the performance poetry world and who I'm guessing as you tour around the country for various books finds himself sometimes in very different spaces, some predominantly black and brown and others blindingly white, uh, that you might find yourself in spaces 
where you're sought off sought after as a black artist, but wouldn't be entirely welcome or comfortable there as a black person. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I just wanted to hear about your own thoughts of navigating the public aspect of being you in the world with this work. Do you find yourself reading certain poems or avoiding others, depending upon audience, the way Morgan Parker might read her Matt poem at very white colleges, for instance? <laughs> Yeah, I was, uh, gosh, last AWP, I think, um, I was in the room and Morgan read that poem uh, <laughs> at the Tin House reading, and um, like a lot of white white men were in the audience laughing, and she stopped and said, why are you laughing? This poem is about you. Uh, and I yeah. liked that, that um, ability to kind of break the fourth wall and step outside oneself was really appealing. Um, so I, I don't... Um, I tend to read what I'm going to read. Um, but a better question I ask myself is not, can the audience handle this? It's more, can I handle an audience reaction to this? Because I say that because I, I'm someone who really enjoys uh, not necessarily the reading, but the interaction after the reading. To me, the reading is kind of perfunctory. Like I don't, me reading my own work is fine and I don't mind it. Um, but the reading is kind of a vehicle to get to talk to people after the reading, be it in a Q&A, which, you know, I'm, I'm perhaps the rare writer who enjoys a Q&A, which, you know, of course, there's some privilege involved in that. I think the type of things I write and the fact that I am a man and, and a straight man, and I think that I get different sets of questions than some of my peers might get. Um, and so there's kind of a privilege to my ability to, to not be um, terrified or, or turned off entirely by a Q&A. Um, but I, I, I want to offer that, like I want to offer like an immersive Q&A experience. I love, um, I, I, I like signing books and talking to people, you know, I like um, talking to people about their music scenes or or what sports they came up playing, like the things that I'm interested in that I didn't ever think I would have a wide enough venue to talk to people about these things, you know, like obviously, yes, I could talk to music about strangers on the internet, which I did. I came up like in message boards talking about records and stuff. Um, but I, I didn't think that this would be a thing I could do. So I, I think about that and I think about those interactions that I can handle. Um, in my new book, there's like a, a, a really long, maybe like 6,000 word piece on, uh, blackface. Um, and there are audiences, I like that piece. I like reading it, but there are days where I look at an audience and I tell myself, okay, I maybe can't handle um, talking about this piece to this audience for 30 minutes after this is over. Um, right. And it's not, and that, that is not an indictment on the audience itself or, uh, but I, I also think that um, I, I'm a firm believer in the fact that um, the people who I'm writing my work for, the work will reach them and everyone else can have access to it, but I'm not going to explain things. You know, I have a piece on spades in my new book and uh, you know, every time I read it, I always tell people like, I'm not going to, this piece doesn't explain the the playing of spades. If you know how to play spades, you're going to get it. If not, then you're going to find your way into this piece through some other door, hopefully. But I think some of that is just like a hopeful, um, Training is a hard word. I don't want to use the word training, but a readjustment of an audience's expectation that they should have the same entry point access as everyone in the room. If I am interested in writing multi-layered work, that means I'm interested 
um, in offering the widest door possible to the people I'm writing for, my people and the people who understand where I'm coming from. But that also means that there's another entry point to a piece about spades where you might be able to sneak in through a smaller door and still feel something. And so um, if I do have some discomfort in places, which doesn't, I want to say it doesn't happen often. I mean, like most of the rooms I'm in, uh, to be frank, just have a lot of black folks in them. Um, But audiences, as they've expanded, I mean, I think that, um, or at the very least have some black folks in them and audiences as they expanded, depending on the city, um, that might not look the same, but I, you know, I've, I've just traveled so much and I've kind of just gotten used to, to maneuvering this world. Um, but what I'm most invested in is, um, reading the work that I feel good about on that day because, um, you know, I don't know if other writers deal with this, but there are days where I don't feel good about, the stuff that I would normally read. I, when I was coming up, I came up in slam um, and I would do like I saw a lot of my peers doing um, where I would just have like a set list ready to go. I would have a, a set list that I would perform everywhere. Um, some of that is because I didn't have much, I didn't have a ton of work to, to cycle through, but other parts of that was because I just knew what people wanted to hear. Um, right. Uh, and if there was something about, you know, and, and I still, you know, I'll still read at a slam every now and then because I love the environment and I love like that. I don't ever want to stray from that, my roots in slam because that's how I learned how to read work. Um, that's how I learned how to read audiences. Um, that's how I learned what parts of my work could get responses. Right. And so I still read at a slam every now and then a couple, you know, if, if they'll have me. Um, and I still know. You know, when I pull up, I'm like, I know what I can read here. I'm never more confident as a reader than I am in those rooms, right? Um, but in every other room, there, there are times where I just don't feel good about my work. And so the, the goal is always to read what I feel good about. Could could you introduce this to and, and read, it is an entirely different thing to walk into the river with stones? Yeah, um, this is a piece that actually came out of um, my curiosity um about Mary Clayton, which there's a Mary Clayton essay in my new book. And um, when I was writing it, I wrote, I wrote this piece. Um, you know, this piece was going to be a part of that essay, or at least the ideas around this piece were going to be a part of that essay. Um, but then I kind of extracted it and made it into um, this poem. And um, could you orient us to, or to listeners yeah. who don't know who Mary Clayton is and maybe the, the the story that you're you're referencing yeah mary clayton um most people probably know mary clayton but don't know mary clayton um mary clayton sang um in the background on the rolling stone song give me shelter um it's it's almost unfair to say she sang in the background she really overwhelmed the song she took over that song uh so that it became her song um and um Shortly after leaving the studio where she sang in that song, she went home uh, and miscarried the child she was carrying when she went in the studio. Um, you know, she was maybe seven months pregnant. Um, and the story of the background singer, particularly the black woman background singer, um, not just Mary Clayton, but a host of them, um, is fascinating to me because so many white bands came to America, so many white bands from like not America, and even some who were from America. Um, we're looking to capture a blues sound. And in order to do that, they would uh, cycle through, you know, black women vocalists 
as as background singers and really wring all they could out of them and those those women never really get the credit i think they deserve um and mary clayton is uh among the most tragic of those stories. Um, she is still living, but she, a couple of years ago, got into a really bad car accident and had to have her legs amputated. Um, and that was another, you know, when I, when I, I, I think I began working on the essay when I heard that story because I was just grieving that. Um, and so this is, uh, this is the poem, it is an entirely different thing to walk into the river with stones. Stretching the fabric of pockets stitched onto a black overcoat. It may seem like now is not the time, but shout out to the stones, whom the old lovers would drop a needle on the first morning they woke to find out their beloved had run into the arms of another. Shout out to the snaps that firework and flourish from a record's ridges in the silence before a song starts. An animal, running its claws against the bars of a prison long enough, grows to love the sound more than it loves freedom. Mick Jagger got a pregnant Mary Clayton out of bed at midnight because he needed someone to sing the word murder like they were trying to squeeze it through a barbed wire fence without opening a wound on their own fingers. And Mary Clayton got home from the studio and miscarried. And when her voice tears at the air on the second syllable of murder, Jagger whispers, wow, and the song must hold up despite death. And it must still be able to sell a car or a sandwich or a war, no matter how many grains of sand it kicked down the tunnel of the hourglass. And it must be able to play in a market where two people trace entire futures out of each other with a cascade of stolen glances. What backstory? What suffering are you willing to make your soundtrack while pulling a zipper south or hiding a condom inside of a hotel Bible? Shout out never to my sins themselves, but always to the child they made me when I was consumed by them. Shout out to the names of boys I wished were never born, and how I've held each name in my pocket and walked to the water's edge. We're listening today to Hanif Abdurraqib read from A Fortune for Your Disaster. I guess I think that was what I was reaching toward in my question earlier about the cost for a white performer or a magician versus a, a, a black performer or a mu musician in the sense that when David Bowie asks Hugh Jackman if he's considered the cost of the machine that will cause astonishment but kill a part of himself, it feels like the the instead of a part of a, someone being killed, in the case of white performers, that, that cost is being offloaded on someone else. When you talk about this accumulating group of black backup singers that never get credit and the 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 um clones at the end of the movie right right that, that make that make the magic trick so amazing but obviously the the clones aren't being seen as integral to the trick even though they really yeah. are but I mean, even zooming out, right? I think what we're um, what we're what we're learning, uh, or what I am learning in this real time, is that America. Well, not even re not even learning, but what I am readjusting myself to understanding uh, is that America itself is the magic trick, right? America itself is a magic trick, and the people um, who actually do the work to make the trick appear what it is um, are not the people who get to take a bow, right? That was the whole right. thing with the prestige. That was the whole thing with with Angier with um, uh, Hugh Jackman's character, was that he just wanted to be present 
he didn't want to disappear below the stage while a clone, while not a clone, while a doppelganger took a bow. Like he didn't want to, he didn't want to drop below the stage and have some random person who he dressed up to look like him drink in the applause of the audience. He wanted to be the person who who got to even a clone of himself, even a just born five minute living clone of himself wanted to take in that applause of the audience right um and i I think that's the that's the whole thing america itself is the magic trick and the people taking the bow are not the people who are working to hold up the facade of what people have thought this country is for a long time yeah well i want to pivot to a a couple questions around craft that because this poem is the first poem you've read that is a prose block but a lot of your poems are written in this style. And you've said that in the first two years of writing poetry, you wrote entirely with performance in mind and didn't yet have a relationship to the line or to line breaks and thus wrote with prose blocks. Uh, can you talk to us more about this, how you develop your style using prose poems and then how you later then learned to have a relationship to the line that's different than the prose block poems? Yeah. I mean, I, I, most of my first book is prose blocks too. You know, I, um, I like the conversational nature of a prose block because, and, and truthfully, my first couple of years I was writing solely for the stage and, and not thinking about how the poems would look on the page beyond that. I was writing to memorize, um, and there was something about prose block that helped me memorize. It, it took me back to perhaps, uh, you know, I was in drama club in high school, and so it, it took me back to memorizing monologues, large blocks of text that I could just read and kind of store. Um, and so I was writing in prose blocks because, one, that's the way I just – I wrote, um, and I wasn't writing for them to appear anywhere other than in, in, in on a piece of paper I'd memorized too, because it was a, a tool of memorization. Um, and so, in it, 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 truthfully, I think the prose block became my form because I I think there's an underrated musicality in a well structured prose block. If you are to use ampersands. Or if you were to use no punctuation at all, I, I I love. Um, I also grew up on punk scenes, and I love a short, fast, and loud song. And I think a prose block with no punctuation is kind of like the short, fast, loud song of poetry. You know, um, you it's it's kind of breathless. It chugs along at a, at an impossible pace, and then it removes you from it. Um, and with that in mind, particularly with this book, I think the evolution between, uh, if there is a large evolution between The Crown Ain't Worth Much and A Fortune for Your Disaster, it's in that I became very interested um, in the musicality of space, like physical space on the page. Um, I began to think of arranging lines of a poem like arranging um, an orchestra and um, or arranging a, a different musical sections and different beats. And I got really fascinated in the moving around of language and what space could offer. And so all my poems still begin in prose blocks. I still write everything first draft is a prose block. Um, and then I begin to, and I'm also a very audio driven person. I, I read all my poems out loud and record myself reading them in the first draft and then play them back to myself. Um, because I think in the process of doing that, the poem tells you how it wants to be read. It tells you, um, 
for me, in my case, in my brain, it tells me what genre of music it is. It tells me if it's a, a jazz arrangement or an R&B ballad or a punk song. Um, it, it tells me all of these things in the reading of it. And through that reading of it, I think I make my formal decisions in terms of, am I going to go short couplets? Am I going to go you know, massively spread out language on the page that gives people a lot of room to breathe and work through really slowly? All these are decisions I make based off of sound. You were writing a column at the Paris Review, and in one of them you were talking about giving a, a craft talk on poetry and sound, and you say, the point is about silence, I think, or the point I'm trying to make is about how the voice itself isn't the instrument. That language is the instrument and voice is just the vehicle, like a speaker or an amplifier. The point is about silence and the things we deem as percussion, how along the landscape of silence any sound that interrupts can be percussive. I guess I wondered in, in light of that, if sometimes in your prose blocks, we see uh, the, the slashes instead of lines. Right. Yeah. Um, is, is that, is that for you the silence that you're talking about there? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in a way it's percussive, right? It's an interruption. It's also me saying, um, it's it's a gentle ask for someone to slow down. Like if I don't want to take a poem out of a prose block, if, I might, if I'm telling myself this poem works best in a prose block, but I want you to slow down from time to time, I'm putting those slashes in there as a gentle ask, right? Um, or um, if I want line breaks but still want the prose block, uh, I'll put those slashes in and I'll nestle the words that I that I the collection of words that I think are are best uh, within those slashes, and I. Um, I don't know. I started doing that mostly because, um, you know, my first book, it was an evolution for me um, where I'd have all these prose block poems and I was trying to learn to do line breaks. And I was like, well, the way I'll do this is by putting these slashes in here and then I'll break the lines. Like I'm putting these slashes in here as an experiment to tell myself when to break and where. Um, but then I, I did it a couple of times. I was like, oh, actually, this looks good. This works as it is. I want to keep it. Um, and, and so that's how that came about. Let's hear another prose block poem and then and then a poem that's more traditionally in lines. Um, if we could hear it, it is maybe time to admit that Michael Jordan definitely pushed off. And then if life is as short as our ancestors insisted is, why isn't everything I want already at my feet? Sure. It is maybe time to admit that Michael Jordan definitely pushed off. That one time in the 98 NBA Finals. And in praise of one man's hand on the waist of another's. And in praise of the ways we guide our ships to the shore of some brief and gilded mercy. I touch my fingers to the hips of this vast and immovable grief and push once more. And who is to say, really, how much weight was behind Jordan's palm on that night in Utah? And on that same night, one year earlier... The paramedics pulled my drowning mother from the sheets where she slept, and they said it must have felt like a whole hand was pushing down on her lungs. And I spent the whole summer holding my breath in bed until the small black spots danced on the ceiling, and I am sorry that there is no way to describe this that is not about agony, or that is not about someone being torn from the perch of their comfort. And on the same night, a year before my mother died, Jordan wept on the floor of the United Center locker 
room after winning another title because it was Father's Day and his father went to sleep on the side of a road in 93 and woke up a ghost and there is no moment worth falling to our knees and galloping toward like the one that sings our dead back into the architecture. And so yes, for a moment in 1998, Michael Jordan made what space he could on the path between him and his father's small and breathing grace. And so yes, there is an ocean between us the length of my arm and i have built nothing for you that can survive it and from here i am close enough to be seen but not close enough to be cherished and from here i can see every possible ending before we even touch if life is as short as our ancestors insist it is why isn't everything i want already at my feet if i make it to heaven I will ask for all the small pleasures I could have had on earth, and I'm sure this will upset the divine order. I'm a simple man. I want, mostly, a year that will not kill me when it is over. A hot stove and a wooden porch bent under the weight of my people. I was born, and it only got worse from there. In the dead chill of a doctor's office, I am told what to cut back on and what to add more of. None of this sounds like living. I sit in a running car underneath a bath of orange light and eat the fried chicken that I swore an oath to stray from for the sake of my heart and its blood labor. Still, there is something about the way a grease stain begins small and then tiptoes its way along the fabric of my pants. Here, finally, a country worth living in. One that falls thick from whatever it is we love so much that we can't stop letting it kill us. If we must die, let it be inside here. If we must. We're listening today to Nif Abdurraqib read from a fortune for your disaster. We, we talked a little bit about literal audiences, but I was curious a little bit about imagined audiences when I think about Michael Jordan creating the creation of space by that arm and then thinking about a lot of your writing about being in white spaces, whether that be at punk shows or at a, a Bruce Springsteen concert where you're one of the only, if not the only person of color there, or playing soccer for Capital University as the only black player and the first American-born black player in school history. And just the presence in general of the audience and the effect of the audience when you're writing about music. I, w I wondered about not so much the literal audience, but also about whether you write toward a specific audience. If, if whether you're creating a space imagined or real that you're writing toward or, or for. Mostly I'm writing for the people I grew up around, the people in my neighborhood, um, which is, you know, I think where I'm from on the east side of Columbus shows up a lot of my work and it shows up a lot, a lot of my work without explanation. Um, and the street names and the parks and all these things show up without explanation because I think that I am kind of writing towards um, a place where the, the people I grew up around can see um, a part of their experience reflected in my work, um, a part of our shared experience reflected in my work. Um, an honoring of the place we're from and an honoring of the people we knew showing up in my work. And so that's, um, that is my, my main interest, I, I think. I mean, I grew up um, 
in a couple of, in two different largely black areas on the east side of Columbus. And um, those areas had people who were varied and unique and um, with vastly different interests and investments in the world. And I, I, I think I, I, I learned from all of them. And so I really want to um, honor them. And I think that is the audience that I'm thinking of first and foremost. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about what happens in the middle section of this collection, the turn, since the turn isn't just a term in magic and the middle section of this, of a magic trick, but it's also an essential term in poetry. Right. Uh, T.S. Eliot called the turn one of the most important means of poetic effect since Homer. And Randall Gerald says that a successful poem starts in one position and ends at a very different one, often a contradictory or opposite one, yet there has been no break in the unity of the poem. Such a transition is executed by the turn. And Phyllis Levin says it introduces the possibility for transformation. And Brian Spears at The Rumpus paraphrases the poet Miller Williams, who said that a poem starts off belonging to the poet and ends up belonging to the reader, and the turn is where the change of ownership happens. So I don't want to put, I don't want to put too much pressure on you regarding the middle section of the book, in terms of me inserting more interpretation than, than may or may not be there. But it, it's interesting to wonder about the turn, not within an individual poem, but in a collection as a whole. And I wondered if you imagined, in some way, the turn in the book. Um, and if you imagined it at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I thought heavily about the, um, the three sections and the three parts and what I as assigned to the three sections. And in this book, I think um, the turn where it was in part um, where uh, the speaker is considering um, not only uh their role um in how heartbreak arrives but the role of the larger world right that's where the the section of the poem about the dogs barking um and marvin gave with the seashell to his ear and so i i think there's a part of this that is also asking the audience to um to take a, a, a bigger part in engaging with the poems um, or asking a reader to take a bigger part in engaging with the poems and engaging with the environment of the poems. Um, also, I, I think it's where um, it becomes somewhat clear that there's an emotional dislocation from something familiar. Um, and so if the first section is presenting um, these ideas around love and closeness, um, with kind of this foreboding understanding that all these things can go away, the turn is where they actually go away. It's a disappearance, right? Made huh. the thing disappear. There, there are 13 poems in the collection that all share the same title. How can black people write about flowers at a time like this? And I was hoping you could talk about this series for us, how, how it arose as a series and how it became another through line in the book sort of a bouquet of flower poems rather than a, a single poem oh yeah i mean i so i 
the title comes from something I'd overheard. I was at a, a Black Poets reading uh, shortly after the election in 2016, um, and a, a white woman was sitting behind me. She whispered that line to the person uh, that she was sitting next to. Whispered, whispered is a generous. She was very loud. Um, and, you know, I think my impulse or the a, a righteous impulse for anyone would be to get angry about that or perhaps turn around and say something. But I began kind of ruminating on this idea, um, not immediately, right? Uh, immediately I was annoyed and all this stuff. But when I got home and thought about it for a few days, I was like, well, the easy thing for me to do would be to write a poem about the white woman who said this at a black poet poetry reading. Um, but the harder thing for me to do was to come to terms with the fact that I, I don't know a lot about flowers. I didn't grow up with an understanding of or a relationship to flowers. There were not many around me. All I know is that countless times th throughout my life, I have presented flowers uh, as a kind of um, to absolve me of something or uh, to mask something. Right. If my house isn't super clean before I'm having people over, I'll get a nice bouquet of flowers and put it in the center of the room. Or if I've done something bad to harm someone um, or if I've hurt someone's feelings, I can provide flowers as an entry point to a conversation. And so I've thought often here we, we're kind of um, trudging close to we're trudging close to this idea of um, who or what gets the credit for uh, the facade of beauty and. Um, so I thought all the, often about how I'd used flowers um, in their very short lives uh, to mask something else. They're doing the work of appearing beautiful um, when I don't have the language to do so or when I don't have uh, the desire to do something or when I failed in some other way. And flowers, of course, have, um, you know, when you're moving from the earth, they... Um, they have shorter lives. They have perhaps shorter lives than they do in their natural habitat. And so it seemed wild to me that um, there was an entire like ecosystem that I had fed into and will undoubtedly continue to feed into um, of shortening the life of an object to provide beauty or to provide a distraction for the things I cannot do on my own. And so I wanted to consider that in my, I really wanted to consider that in these poems. And so um, I wrote like 35 of these, of course, only a handful made the book. Um, but I wrote a bunch because, and it wasn't about understanding flowers better. I still don't understand flowers. I still don't know anything about flowers. Um, <laughs> or at least that's not true. I know more than I did before I started the poems, but I still know very little. Um, you know, because I would research them, but I didn't retain a lot of that research because it would be so, the research was so distracted. It would be like, I'd see a thing and be like, oh, wow, that's that's fascinating. Let me dive more into that one thing. Um, so I don't know much more about flowers, but I think that I better understand my impulse um, or the impulses I've had to use flowers in the way I have or the impulse that I think people have to uproot flowers uh, and, and create some distracting beauty. Well, this this question that the white woman asked or or whispered loudly, how can black people write about flowers at a, at a time like this? This question seems to be a widespread question. It, I think of Camille Dungy's, uh, the, who's the editor of Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry, who says people rarely think of black poets as writing in a genre that, 
that brings to mind having the leisure and time to contemplate a field of flowers. Or Aziza Barnes' poem entitled, My Dad Asks How Come Black People Can't Just Write About Flowers. Or Ross Gay's flower lecture that he gave in response to the question posed to him, what are you resisting in your book of flowers, black man? And I, I transcribed a couple lines that stood out from that talk of his, which is an amazing talk. Uh, one, one line from Gay is, how you see or what you see depends on the ground. You cannot engrave in other words. You cannot dig in other words. You cannot prepare the earth for your body without a proper and true ground. Maybe this book of flowers is a preparation for the ground I wish to enter. And he also says, I believe in gratitude, quote unquote, flowers as a kind of discipline and energizing and catalyzing and potentially collectivizing discipline. What I mean is that when I'm thinking of gratitude or the gratitude I'm thinking of is largely about the ways we make each other possible. Yeah. That gratitude makes me more interested in making people possible, myself included. I don't know if, if that prompts any thoughts, but I wanted to just maybe place some of your flower poems in a, in a open question lineage and then have people hear uh, some of the flower poems. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, I, I think um, I, a thing that's so wild to me is that I thought that um, writing all these poems would encourage a more um, rigorous engagement with the, the natural world. And it kind of made me more afraid of the natural world, you know, I, I think, oh. um, which I think is also healthy and worth exploring. The singer Florence Welch has this great quote where she says something like, I am, I'm in love, I'm deeply in love with the world, but also incredibly afraid of it. Um, and I, I think that as I went deeper into these poems and honestly deeper into this book, um, I understood that. Um, like I understood more um, what living, what my very presence on, in, in the world um, is doing, not just to the world itself, but to... Um, other people who are living in the world, right? How, how, the, how our living affects a wider ecosystem beyond, our, beyond ourselves, which is not like the first time I understood that. But I think I got a deeper understanding of it while working on the book. Well, I was hoping we could hear th three of the how can black people write about flowers at a time like this, um, pages 4, 56, and 80. Sure. How can black people write about flowers at a time like this? Dear reader, with our heels digging into the good mud at a swamp's edge, you might tell me something about the dandelion head and how it is not a flower itself, but a plant made up of many small flowers at its crown. And Lord knows, I have been called by what I look like more than I have been called by what I actually am. And I wish to return the favor for the purpose of this exercise, which too is an attempt at fashioning something pretty out of seeds, refusing to make anything worthwhile of their burial. Size me up and skip whatever semantics arrive to the tongue first. Say, that boy, he looked like a hollowed-out grandfather clock. He looked like a million-dollar god with a two-cent heaven. Like all it takes is one kiss, and before morning, you could scatter his whole mind across a field. 
How can black people write about flowers at a time like this? But if you'll indulge my worst impulses, isn't it funny how the white petals of the oleander do not render the crow flightless upon being swallowed? And yet, the human body crumbles under the weight of their softness? By funny, you may think the joke is about the black thing consuming a bouquet of whiteness without falling from the sky in droves. But by funny, I mean I am adorning my fingertips with white petals and running a thumb along the edges of your mouth, agape with a rapturous desire. To hoard desire is one way of becoming a fiend. My homie peddled white to fiends who took the white peddled into themselves, and some did not survive, but some, I imagine, grew brief black wings. Having never felt it, I will still wish upon you the feeling of knowing exactly where your next high will be born from. I do not define the distance between sinning and deliverance. I pedaled the white bike downtown on a Tuesday. The homie got 15 for hoarding the white he had yet to pedal inside of a suitcase. His mother cried in the courtroom, mad perhaps, with the sudden descent of feathers. How can black people write about flowers at a time like this? Forgive me for I have been nurturing my well-worn grudges against beauty. I am hoping my neighbors will show some mercy on me for backing my car into the garden and crushing what I will say were the peonies, a flower with the short season, born dying. Some might say it's a blessing to know your entrances and exits. Forgive me, for I have once again been recklessly made responsible for the curation of softness and have instead returned with another torrent of viciousness. In the brief moment of their flourish, at the opening of spring, I drove across state lines to gather peonies for a woman who loved me once. As a way of surrender, I pull the already dying thing from the earth in a mess of tangled knots, and I insist that you must keep it alive for a year, even after it so desperately wants to be done with the foolishness of its living. The last thing I ask of this relationship is to burden you with another relationship. It is so delicious to define the misery you are putting a body out of. And just like that, we are talking about power. How awful this must be for you, I whispered, as I closed my eyes and put the car into reverse. So, you know, as soon as I started thinking about this question about writing about flowers, uh, it, it appeared everywhere. Um, Saeed Jones said something on poetry off the shelf that I think shares some of the spirit of your flower poems. He said, I'm just amazed people are out here writing entire books about flowers, which is fine. I love a good flower poem, but you mean to tell me you're capable of writing so intimately and intelligently about a daffodil, but find it somehow impossible to identify with Tamir Rice's mother, the 12-year-old who was killed by police officers. I read recently that she said, I have to keep rewatching the video of my son being killed. That's the last moment I got to see my child alive. You mean to tell me you can't connect with that moment, that person? Perhaps you don't have to wait for that moment where someone goes through immense tragedy to connect with them, but you can do it with a flower? This quote by Saeed Jones made me, th me think of something you said in your essay collection, where you said, My friends say that I've gotten too cynical and I suspect this might be true, judging by how quickly many people get exhausted when talking to me about the future. 
I am, it turns out, a nesting doll of cynics. There is no evidence to suggest that humans are going to become any more kind this year or more empathetic or more loving towards each other. If anything, with our constant exposure to all of one another's most intense moments, the bar for what we seem prepared to tolerate gets lower with every second we spend screaming into each other's open windows. I have been thinking then about the value of optimism while cities burn, while people are fearing for their lives and the lives of their loved ones, while discourse is reduced to laughing through a chorus of anxiety. And I guess the, the reason why I was bringing these two quotes up is in light of them, you've mentioned that A Fortune of Your Disaster was going to be a sad book, and then you realized it wasn't that book anymore, and then proceeded to rewrite a lot of the poems in it. And it made me very curious just to hear about what that process of rewriting, and even it sounds like reimagining the book was. How did you go from a book born in a, a sadness that became something else and then required you to rework it. Well, I mean, I think some people would argue that's still a sad book, <laughs> which is, I mean, to be fair, I think my barometer for sadness is uh, not the same as everyone else's. I, I think my friends would uh, wholeheartedly and eagerly agree. Um, but, you know, a funny thing, gosh, I, I, this, there's this great story about how, um, this magazine asked me if I could send them a poem. This is a few years ago. Um, and it's a magazine that doesn't normally publish poems. And so they were like, you know, the, the, the person who asked was very kind and familiar with my work. And they were like, you know, I love your work. But if you have something that's not too sad, maybe because our readers don't often read poems and we would like them to have. And they're like, it doesn't have to be happy or joyful or dancey, but just not like, you know, miserable. <laughs> um, and I sent them this poem and they sent it back and they were like, oh, you know, do you have, do you have anything else? And I was so offended by this. And I hit up my friend, I hit up my like friend, my group of friend poets. I was like, can you believe that I sent them the poem that I sent them? I was like, they sent it back to me. Can you believe, you know, they, they sent this poem back. This poem isn't all that sad. And one of my friends very gently and kindly responded, I think you should maybe go to therapy. <laughs> I was like, I do already. <laughs> uh, maybe I need to do more. Um, but a big part, of, I do want to say too, a big part of reimagining a fortune for your disaster was also to not write a vengeful book about heartbreak. That is more than just like I, this idea about sadness. I was thinking about how so much breakup art, particularly when it's breakup art made by men, um, becomes vengeful and perhaps demands a response out of out of someone who um, may have hurt hurt us or you or whomever um and that person may not write or may not even care about poems or may not you know i and i wanted to be thoughtful about that and i also wanted to be thoughtful about um i wanted to be thankful i wanted it to be a thankful book too i wanted it to be a book that showed gratitude for having been loved by someone at all and having the opportunity to love someone at all because that's not, none of us are entitled to love. No one is required to love us. We're not even required to love ourselves. Um, and so I, I did not want a book that seemed vengeful or angry or like it was assigning blame. I instead wanted a book that considered the many ways uh, to be grateful for the opportunity to love someone and understanding of the ways that we all can fall short even while reveling in that gratitude. 
Um, and to me, that was a more joyful book. Um, I appreciate that the end result to some folks is still a sad book. I, I, I get that and understand that wholeheartedly. Um, but the pursuit of understanding the difference between uh, a vengeful book and a book curious about um, love and entitlement and grief um, seemed, seemed much more interesting to write. Yeah. And made me wonder also a little bit uh, at the very beginning, you talked about a specific Marvin Gaye album here, my dear, that you were interested in, which raises questions of performance and audience too, in the sense of, of this notion of being publicly sad and at what cost and even having to navigate potentially prosperity that comes through being sad in a public way. Is that somehow connected to you working out the questions of heartbreak in the in the poetry collection? Yeah, I mean, because it, it, it's also about what I wanted people to have access to, like what parts of this grief I wanted people to have access to and how easy it would be for me to just kind of, um, you know, put on a nice suit and twirl on stage while yelling, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But I think the question... Um, the question that I was asking myself in the maneuvering of this particular breakup and in the maneuvering of um, writing during it was always, am I going to be proud of my behavior, my language, my choices two years from now or a year from now or whenever I'm not sad anymore? Whenever I'm not sad or angry or frustrated or hurt anymore, will I be able to look back on how I behaved or what I wrote or what I created and say, I still feel okay about that. I still feel like I um, reduced harm instead of adding harm to the world. I still feel like I uh, am not being celebrated for my sadness, but for my examination of uh, of that sadness. And so I, I, that's another reason why I did away with half the book, because everything I wrote had to, had to stand up to that question. And if it couldn't, I had to get rid of it. Yeah. Could we hear uh, one last poem? Um a Marvin Gaye poem, the, the ghost of Marvin Gaye sits inside the shell of Nikola Tesla's machine and builds himself a proper coffin. Yeah. Um, and of course this poem is in the voice of Marvin Gaye or it's supposed to be, I'm probably not going to do any cool, weird voices. Um, but, uh, but that's just, that's what it is. Let me find it. It's funny because I don't look at, this book often um like i have a, a section of poems i read but i don't actually open the book too often but this is the ghost of marvin gay sits inside the shell of nikola tesla's machine and builds himself a proper coffin shit where i'm from all you had to do to make a man disappear was give him the love of a good woman and a little temptation from a bad one and that ain't a trick of nothing except two stars snapping their finger together at the right rhythm. And before you know it, everybody gonna find themselves behind a new curtain. The first funeral is when you sweat through a suit on stage and the women don't even bother screaming. Everything that comes after that is just waiting. I seen the future too once and wasn't nothing there except a trail of broken hearts calling me daddy. I seen progress and all I got is these empty rooms. Don't let all that begging fool you, baby. I didn't never want forgiveness or any type of heaven that didn't wash off with the sunrise. I imagine 
in a field somewhere, all the parts of myself I left behind writhing back together. And that's the trick. You make yourself a god to someone new every night, and then before you know it, you can write your own Bible. I was building a grave this whole time, and you all were too drunk on the howling of naked skin to notice. It takes a man to go home and die. It takes a man to drain the light from his mother's eyes while blood makes the outline of a small boy's hand on her Sunday dress. In this version of the gospel, the flood is already there. In this version, Noah opens the doors to the ark and begs the animals to come inside, but they shake their heads and march into the drowning one by one. Listening to Hanif Abdurraqib read from a fortune for your disaster. Well, one way to look at, at magic tricks is as this means to produce a sense of wonder or amazement, but another way is, is looking at the tricks as deceptions. And and the way the book is bookended foregrounds this latter aspect. The collection is bookended by the lines from the character played by Michael Caine in The Prestige, a story he's telling that he ultimately admits isn't true. And similarly, the collection is bookended by poems entitled The Prestige. But the final poem, entitled The Prestige, has two versions, a more hopeful version and erasure of the same poem that is much more hopeless and dark. And perhaps like the Michael Caine story, one is a lie and one is the truth. Perhaps one is the duplicate that must die so that the other can astonish, but we don't know which one is which. Yeah, so I, I was. I, I wanted you to talk about your desire to land here tonally and thematically at the end. In this this doubling space. Yeah, I mean, I well, I do want to say that the, you know, initially I'd, I had had um, the book opening on a black page with the story of the sailor, um, but I I took it away because I liked kind of presenting the the conclusion of that uh, at the ending. Um, and just have it hanging there. Um, and I, I think largely this is because of how I felt after I wrote the book. I mean, after I wrote this book and, and was finished with it, I felt exhausted in a way that I had never felt before when completing a project. I had felt um, so emotionally drained. I felt like I had reached the top of this emotional mountain and I had to kind of figure out, okay, how am I gonna get back? How am I gonna get back down? Um, and it appeared to me then, as it still does now, that that was the hard part. The hard part wasn't the writing. Um, the hard part was returning to a sense of emotional normalcy, emotional normalcy after the writing. And that part was difficult. And that part felt more like a challenge. And so, um, you know, I love that story and how it appears in the movie because it's like um, Cutter, Michael Caine's character, clearly tells it to Angier to say what you're embarking on is going to feel easy. And then you get to the end and it's like, actually you're, what you're about to embark on is the hard part. Um, and so I, I love that there in the ending prestige, I wanted to play with the trick of bringing, making it something that had vanished reappear. Um, and so I wrote like this reverse erasure, uh, and I wanted to land on that idea of, um, what it is to make the language reappear after it after it had gone away and to present a fuller picture um of what i wanted the ending to be after you know making the ending seem 
really sparse and somewhat bleak. Before we end, I wanted to hear about your your upcoming two books. You have a two book deal. One just is one, just one now. Uh, yeah. Oh, is it just we, one? Yeah, we cut it to just one. Okay. And is that the book on black performance in the in the U.S.? Yeah, it is. Um, and that will be out in about a year from now. Um, and it, I mean, it's done. I turned it in. Um, and we're doing like final edits and doing cover stuff right now, which is exciting. Um, you know, this is the first year I've had since 2015 where I'm not spending the year working on a book or spending the year working on a book project. Um, and that's really freeing. And so I'm excited about this book. Uh, it's a collection of really like much longer essays that are, um, honing in on celebrations of performers and performance, be it Josephine Baker or the playing of spades or, Ellen Armstrong, who's the first black woman magician to have her own show, or Dave Chappelle. I'm just like considering how performance sits in the world, black performance sits in the world, and how it's consumed by the world. Maybe the final question would be looking at this book and the writing of it in relationship to your, your books as a whole. Because I know when you write about bands, you often love to write not about a band's most famous record, but often the one that follows it. So the way that Fleetwood Mac followed rumors with Tusk, right. which challenged their audience and even antagonized their audience rather than giving them what they wanted after a very s- successful thing. And your book, Go Ahead in the Rain, was such a huge success and was a finalist for many huge awards, a bestseller. And you said that the appreciation and success actually made you second guess what's happening in the book, that maybe you had cast too wide a net. And it just made me wonder under what sort of um, miasm you were writing psychologically when you were writing the next book. Um, Cause you're very curious about how, a, what a band does when they're writing under the shadow of a previous success. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like writing in, in either an anticipated or unanticipated success with go ahead in the rain and then, and how, how that, that would color or not color the the writing of your your upcoming book? Oh, it doesn't color it at all. I mean, my approach stays the same. Yeah, my approach is, is almost always the same. Um, and the approach for this book is, is, I think, most similar to Go Ahead in the Rain in that it was asking how can I tell a unique and exciting run of stories um, that aren't just about a person living and dying, but honoring the entire landscape that they touched. Um, and and um, thinking about how that landscape involves my life or the lives of people I love. I mean, I have a piece about um, Soul Train Lines that is also a piece about my friends and my parents and um, the people I watched dancing on, on WGN on Sundays when they show reruns when I was a kid. And I, I mean, so it's, it's a similar approach. I, t- I take the same approach. I'm not, um, you know, I, I think... Part of that is because um, literary quote unquote success is so arbitrary um, that it's not even something I think about or, or can consider. It'd be unfair for, for my work if I were to consider that. Um, you know, I'm beholden to the work first. I believe in doing the work the best way I can at the moment with the tools I have. And um, whatever comes out of that comes out of that. Well, I, I love the collection, Hanif, and I'm really happy we were able to, after many hurdles, have this conversation about it. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. 
We're talking today to Hanif Abdurraqib about his latest collection from Tin House, A Fortune for Your Disaster. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's episode was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, your host, David Naiman. More of Hanif Abdurraqib's work can be found at abdurraqib.com. For the bonus audio archive, Hanif reads and talks about a poem he loves called Not a Mile by Andrew Grace. This addition to the archive joins readings by Jenny Ophel, Richard Powers, Ted Chang, Arlen James, Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, E.J. Ko, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who tirelessly help make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the unmatchable summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's Trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.